Hello, this is Jim Walsh, and welcome to my podcast called On Eagle's Wings. Today I am presenting a lesson dealing with the account of the two men that are found on the road to Emmaus as found in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24. And the title of this lesson is called, What Can Jesus Do for You and Me? Of the two men on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. In verse 17, when Jesus approaches them, he says, What manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk and are sad? So what I'd like for us to do is go back and look at Luke chapter 24 from a standpoint of answering the question, what can Jesus do for me and for you? So let's go back and let's look at this situation. And so we find that there are these two men. It tells us in verse 13 that they went that same day to a village called Emmaus. So there were two of them. And they're going towards this village, Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs. They talked together of all these things which had happened. So they are recounting between themselves the death, the burial of Jesus. And now the information that they had received that the first part of the chapter tells us about. That the women come to the grave, they find the grave empty. So now there's questions in their mind, what does all of this mean? It came to pass, verse 15, that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? One of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? So as he answers... He's somewhat surprised, amazed, maybe even incredulous to think about the fact that this guy doesn't know what's going on. He should be feeling like they're feeling, but he's not. And so it says in verse 19, he, speaking of Jesus, said unto them, what things? And they said unto him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel and beside all this today is the third day since these things were done now I want you to to keep verse 21 in mind because that really is their point of view right now They are looking at what they thought should have happened that did not. And and that's a problem that we all deal with. And, And the problem is our expected future, because we created a particular future that we had no power to bring into existence. So when something happens that was unexpected, that we weren't planning for, we begin to ask questions when... The future that we had projected in our mind, whatever future that was, was not one that we had the power to bring into existence. James deals with that. When he says to those, go to you now that say, we'll go into such a city and buy and sell and get gain. He says, well, you don't know what's going to happen. 
We don't know. It's not saying we can't plan. It's not saying we can't think about the things we'd like to have. What it is saying is that our reaction to the events of life should not be dependent upon what we were planning was going to happen. So they're thinking all of these things should have happened. And now in their mind, they're saying it didn't. Yea, verse 22, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. When they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. Certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher, found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. So we know their particular condition. First and foremost, we, we noticed verse 17 earlier. They were sad, and that sadness affected how it was that they looked because Jesus said that he could tell as he came near, and it says, he looked at them. What manner of communication is these that you have that you have one of the, another as you walk and are sad? So he could sense, he could see this condition that they were in. When we have that sense of helplessness and we feel like giving up because things are not working the way we thought they should be, it takes a sense of maturity to not allow the events of today to destroy the hope of tomorrow. When you read continuing in verses 19 through 21, you have this sense that they felt betrayed. Again, we go to verse 21. They note that everything is in past tense. We trusted he should have redeemed Israel. So they're looking at the situation and they're saying these were the things we expected. Now we're over here on this side and it didn't happen. In their confusion, they believed that the moment was over. A sense of excitement over some new event has now been crushed and their thoughts of the are those of having lost that moment and its leader but even beyond that their purpose you know why do people get caught up in a movement and, and i think one of the reasons people get caught up in a movement is because it gives them a sense of purpose i now can do something i can be involved and i think for most of us we want a sense of involvement. We, we recognize I'm not here, most of us anyways, I'm not here just for me. I'm here to be involved with other people. And, and you know, God gives us that sense of purpose too when he talks about the idea of worship. That worship is together. Worship involves other people. I'm not worshiping anyone. No one's worshiping me. But together we engage in worship that's offered up to God. And so we see, yes, in the patriarchal times, worship was private. Abraham could go out and worship. Isaac could go out and worship. It was acceptable to God. But private worship is no substitute for worship as described in the New Testament. What we find in the New Testament is the concept of togetherness. Why? Because it gives me a purpose. I have a reason now to motivate myself. And so they're looking at the fact that in their mind, a movement is concluded and their part in that movement is over. They believed that Jesus was the answer to their problems. 
And he is. They were right in believing that. But then we also note verse 22, part of the problem is now they're confused. Again, they had projected something that does not come about. And so now they're stepping back and they're looking at all their beliefs instead of looking at all the evidence. So in verse 22, certain women of our company made us astonished. They told a story. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. We get information. Sometimes it's more information than we were expecting. Other times it's simply false information. And we get that information and now that changes everything. Even true information can contradict what we previously believed. And so they are thinking, I saw him beaten. I saw him crucified. I saw them take the body away. It was placed in a tomb. And now the women are telling us he's alive. That can't be. So added to the fact that they were sad, added to the fact that they felt a sense of betrayal, now they are confused. Then the more information they get, the more, or I guess you could say, the less they understand. Verse 23, when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels which said he was alive. Certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so. So additional in information, visions, angels, an empty tomb. How could these things be? Again, we project a future without the ability to create that future. And when it doesn't happen, that brings a sense of sadness, helplessness, because we feel like I don't really have any input to the way things are. But the idea of the resurrection was not foreign. Life and death may have been a subject that they had heard, but they did not truly understand. Back in the book of Job, in Job chapter 19, Job chapter 19. Read along with me, if you would, please, beginning in verse 25. Job said, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. What is Job saying? I think in a very simple sense, what Job is saying is, I believe that even after death, I will behold God. So what is he talking about? Existence after death. Why were there two groups of religious leaders during Jesus' day? Because they were divided over issues dealing with life after death. The Pharisees believed in the concept of a resurrection. The Sadducees did not. Paul utilizes that in the book of Acts to cause a division one time when he stands before the council and he says, I'm called in question today over my belief that there is a resurrection, which the Pharisees then would have supported him in. And they did. So it caused a big discussion at that point and removed Paul from the, the focus to these two groups getting back to being divided. So you have these two religious groups. Well, how did the idea of the resurrection come up? Because scriptures detailed it, whether we're dealing with Job or whether we're dealing with 
Psalms 22 or whether we're dealing with any of those places in the Old Testament that talk about the idea that the one left in the grave would not be uh, there permanently. You know, when, when David dealt with his son that died through Bathsheba and they want to know why is it that after he finds out his son has died, he stops praying and he gets up and he cleans it and he anoints himself and he says, he says, you know, he can't come to me but I can go to him. What is he talking about in existence after life? So these are things that they would have had knowledge of, but not a full understanding in, in dealing with it. So an empty grave has been presented and that presents them with the problem because the question is, where is the body? Many times in life we don't have answers. What are we to do? And Satan likes to ask the questions that we can't answer, hoping that it will destroy our faith. And so oftentimes we deal with individuals, we deal with individuals who want to question what, what this event is about, or they bring up supposed contradictions in God's word. And what is it that Peter reminds us about in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15? He talks about the idea of sanctifying the Lord in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about utilizing the time available to study God's word and gain a deeper understanding so we're not tripped up by these supposed questions that, that people bring forth as a means of trying to weaken or destroy our faith. When Paul wrote to Timothy in first, excuse me, in Second Timothy chapter one in verse twelve, he said, "For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded." What does he mean? I'm convicted. I am assured that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. So, in effect, you know, Paul was saying to Timothy, "I'm not worried." about what's going to happen because I know who's in control of all these things. So here are these two individuals and they, they're in a situation where they just kind of wonder, what are we going to do? What's the purpose of going forward? In all these things, they were reacting to fragments of information without the whole story. And we have to be careful not to draw our conclusions until we learn and examine all the evidence. So, what then can Jesus do for us? Well, let's pick up the narrative then in Luke 24, beginning in verse 25. He said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. And they constrained him, saying, Abide with us. It is toward evening, the day is far spent, and he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them, and their eyes were open, and they knew him. And he vanished out of their sight, and they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? Now the first thing I, I want you to think about is when they first meet him, what is their reaction? They're just surprised that this guy doesn't know anything about what's going on. But then afterwards, their thought is, oh, don't go, stay. We want, we want to talk more with you. 
These two men are fortunate that they're talking to the master because our Lord, our Savior, our master can change our fears to faith and he creates hope from the emptiness of hopelessness. Jesus is the only one who not only knows the truth, but he knows the future and his word prepares us for that future. So what can Jesus do? Well, first I'd like to suggest he can correct us. He reminds us of what God's word says. In verses 25 and 26, he actually chastises them. And he says, you need to go back and look at all that the prophets had spoken. Those weren't just words that you learn when you come together. It's not just about quote unquote Bible study. These are words to guide our life. There's supposed to be a sense of conviction that if God has said it, then that's the truth. And now I have to change to conform to that truth. He reminded them thus of God's word and the correcting power to dispel misinformation and place in us the means to be convicted. Secondly, he directs us. Verse 27, it says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them. In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Where am I going to find the information? Well, the information isn't out there. The information is here. The information for how I'm supposed to act in every situation. You know, we often say, and I believe 100% rightly so, that Christians make the best citizens. Why is that? Because everything in the scripture points us to our relationship in dealing with others and not simply our relationship about ourselves. So whether it's our relationship to the government, whether it's our relationship to our spouses, whether it's our relationship to our friends and family in the community, whatever relationship it is, the scriptures tell us, here's how I'm to act to be the best representative of Jesus Christ so that I don't detract from the gospel but I imitate and in some respects enhance an individual's knowledge of the gospel he teaches us by revealing all truth that was his promise that he would reveal truth in John chapter 8 he chastised the religious leaders of that day because they said they knew the truth, but they didn't teach the truth, neither did they practice the truth. Beginning in verse 43 of John chapter 8, he said, Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words, ye therefore hear them not because you're not of God. I don't know how he could have been any plainer in saying, I'm preaching the truth that comes from God. You can test that. You can go back. In fact, if you were to go to John chapter 5, he talks about the testimony of Moses. He talks about the testimony of John the Baptist. He talks about the testimony of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's saying, don't just believe me. Look at all these other things to confirm what I'm saying as truth. 
He promised in dealing with that truth that his death, burial, and resurrection would not be the end, but the truth would be continue to be revealed. And so John chapter 15, verse 26, but when he, the comforter has come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the spirit of truth, which shall proceed from the Father, he shall testify of me, and ye shall bear witness because ye have been with me from the beginning. Then John 16, verse 13, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So just as the Son heard the words of the Father and taught the words of the Father, he said, so too would the Spirit do that. His death his burial and his resurrection did not destroy his teaching, but actually confirmed it. What else can Jesus do? Jesus demonstrates the incredible power of God to change what we believe because of man's history and accept the reality of God's word. In verse 27, he spoke about all the things in the scriptures concerning himself. What are we talking about? The resurrection. What was their question? There's an empty grave. What does it mean? Jesus said, Christ is resurrected. Well, that's confusing to us. It shouldn't be confusing. It was spoken about. It was predicted. It was demonstrated. Jesus spoke many times of the resurrection, yet they did not understand and it's until we fully grasp the love of God that we won't understand. Jesus can comfort us. In verse 29, they constrained him, abide with us. Why? He, he was giving them a sense of comfort. And, and that's a promise that Jesus gave. And Matthew talks about that in a verse I know that you're very familiar with. In, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That rest isn't given to us like candy. But it's a rest that we engage in when we yoke ourselves to him. He talked about the idea of engagement in fellowship. So when they asked him in verse 29 to spend some time with them, it says it came to pass. So he did spend time. He sat at meat with them. Then he, he blessed it and break it and he gave the bread to them at which point they clearly understood who he was. The idea of fellowship, that is the offer that is being given unto us, to be with us every step of the way, to be with us when we deal with confusion, to be with, uh, to be with us when we deal with sadness, to be with us when we have these events in life that unfold that don't make sense to us, to help us to move beyond that and to trust in him to get to the better days. Jesus can help us to know him better. Verse 31, it says, their eyes were opened and they knew him. You know, it doesn't tell us how it is that they did not know him. It just tells us they didn't. And so in my mind, as I'm expressing a, an opinion of Jim Walsh, I think it had to have been a miracle of some sort that his 
ability, their ability to know who he was was hidden from them. I would think that, you know, if you've seen someone many times and then you see him again, you, you should know who that person is, but somehow it's being hidden from them. So now they have this ability to know him. And the problem is that there are a lot of people today that don't know him. Sometimes folks don't know him because they have preconceived ideas. We thought it should be this way, and now it's not. Behold, I thought. No, that's not the way things are. Life is not made up of the things I believe. Life is made up of the things that God has revealed. Sometimes folks don't know him because they're looking in the wrong places. How many people today don't really know Jesus as Lord because they continue to look in the wrong places? They look in man-made religion. They look at the teachings of worldly-minded philosophers. They listen to the popular prosperity preachers. And you won't find him there. The only place you're going to find him is here in God's Word. And so that's why it says in verse 27, beginning at Moses and the prophets. Jesus said, you want to know me? You read the words of my Father. Some folks don't know him because he doesn't fit their preconceived ideas. So he taught about love and mercy and forgiveness, not vengeance. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If someone compels you to go a mile, go too. If they ask for your cloak, give them your, your coat also. So he said, look, you need to be nice to people, even when they're not nice to you. I don't like that idea. I don't like the idea of me not being able to do tit for tat. If someone's bad to me, I want to be bad back. And you're telling me I can't do that. You're telling me if I'm in a fellowship relationship with you that I have to act like you did. And there was no guile in his mouth. He wasn't deceptive. When he was despitefully used, he did not respond that way. So Jesus doesn't fit their preconceived notions. So, you know, when someone says, what would Jesus do? If they're not telling you scripture, then they're just giving you opinion. And that opinion could be warped. But a final thought of what Jesus can do for me and you is that he changes us. Verse 32, they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? Isn't that, isn't that what we want? We want fellowship with Jesus and we want understanding. And that's what he agrees to do in his word, to present understanding so that we can have fellowship with him. Look what Paul wrote in, in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He said, you hath he quickened. Now the King James Version uses the word quickened, but the word there, my understanding is made alive. He says, you, he made alive. So he changed them who were dead in trespasses and sins. So I know that that idea of quickened to be made alive is correct because he said, you were dead. He's not just saying, you were fully dead, now you're only partially dead. No, he's saying you were dead, now you're alive. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So he said, that's where you were. Then verse 13, now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. They're no longer sad. They're enlightened. They're happy, they're joyous, they're convicted. Okay, 
Everything we've heard is right. It's true. Because God said it was going to happen. They understand God's marvelous plan and his power and they're uplifted. And now they're excited. Verse 32, they rose up the same hour, returned to Jerusalem. I said, we've got to go tell everybody else. So when Jesus changes your life, there should be an excitement there that you want to share it with others. Because now instead of looking down, you're looking up. This story is really a wonderful and marvelous one because... It demonstrates what a relationship with Jesus Christ is supposed to do for us. It's supposed to change our confusion to understanding, and it's supposed to fill us with hope and fill us with joy. They were confused, they were saddened, but Jesus caused them to understand and be happy. That is the purpose of the gospel. Create an understanding of what true happiness is, not found in the world, found in Jesus Christ. And when all the truth is revealed and ready minds investigate and accept it, then redemption can take place, salvation can be received, and souls can rejoice. And when we obey, the doors of heaven are opened and we can have eternal life. Jesus can do that if you will let him. But the only way he will do it is if you obey the gospel. That message is preached just like it was on the day of Pentecost, that Jesus is the Christ. Those who believe him to be the Christ, confess him as such, repenting of their sins, and then be baptized for the remission of their sins are those who do receive the atoning blood that cleanses their soul spotless and free. They then are brought into the household of God. The gates of heaven are open for them. And there's an expectation by our heavenly Father that we can live a life that's faithful to him and be welcomed home in the end. Once again, this is Jim Walsh. Thank you so very much for listening to my podcast today.